Hello, everyone, and welcome to Privacy Tech Talk, the podcast where we talk everything privacy tech. I am very, very excited today because I've been looking forward to interviewing this person for a very long time. I got to admit, and I don't know if this person knows this, but I do have a bit of a man crush on this guy. I tend to look up to successful entrepreneurs like people look up to famous artists. And to me, this guy is like the Kendrick Lamar of entrepreneurship. He sold his first company Wrapped to Microsoft and his second company Crux to Salesforce. Now he's the co-founder of several organizations, including Catch, a company automating privacy compliance by helping organizations automate tasks like data discovery and classification, responding to data subject rights requests and consent management. He also moonlights as the co-host of the Closed Session podcast where he gives insights on how to start and build successful companies. I've listened to all of their episodes, some of them twice. When this man sleeps, I don't know. Anyways, I can sing this man's praises uh, for hours on end, but I'm sure you all much, much, would much rather hear from the man himself, the CEO and co-founder of Catch, Tom Chavez. Tom, thank you so much for being uh, in our podcast today. Well, thank you, Fahad. That was quite an introduction. You know, I love, love, love hip hop and Kendrick Lamar is the tippy top. I am no Kendrick <laughs> Lamar. I'm, I'm maybe at best like a young Jeezy, let's say. That's, I think that's very humble of you to follow yeah. one of Kendrick Lamar's advices. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Be humble. Another and, strong and you know album. What? Funnily, I was, I was attending Kendrick Lamar's concert in Toronto with my son, very recently, just last year, and and it was oh. such an experience. They didn't know the artist, and well, he's quite unique. So yeah, that's cool. Oh, thank you, Tom. my gosh, thank you, Carlos. It's it's good to be here with both of you. Yeah, I'm bummed to say I've I've never seen Kendrick Lamar live, and I got to fix that quickly. You know, it's uh, it's I'm such jealous. an experience. It's such an experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Tom, on the Tom, list. Yeah, cool. Thank you so much for being here today, Tom. C can you please? Talk to us a little bit more about Kitch, what the company does, what problem is solving, and why you think it is important for that problem to be solved. Sure. Well, I know I'm preaching to the choir here with the two of you, but for our listeners or, or people who are newer to this topic, if you're a company and you're in business and you have a website, uh, whether you knew it or not, you've got a privacy problem. And alongside that is is the reality that you have a, an opportunity to build trust. So we start with that, that big principle and, and every company in my view worth a damn needs to have a large overarching principle that, that propels it forward, a context, right? That makes it necessary. So as the entire planet, I think tilts increasingly towards matters of privacy as we, we become more and more aware of the places and ways in which our data dignity has been trampled, our privacy has been disrespected, you know, now, like good engineers, we look at this and we say, okay, that's that's a problem, but what are we going to do? And what, at, in essence, what Catch creates is, is a data fabric that allows any company, large or small, to respect privacy, to dazzle its, its customers and consumers and partners with perfect control over responsibly gathered data. And I think in the first innings of, of privacy, as it needed to be, it was much more of a programs-oriented undertaking, right? We have lawyers, for example, who are complying with GDPR. GDPR was the match out the window, right? The Europeans made that move 
and thousands of companies across the planet were caught flat-footed. Um, lawyers who care about privacy and are, are, are steeped in the space start to, to develop policies, programs, checklists, surveys, all of the all of these sort of more paper-oriented elements that help a company ascertain whether or not it's it's complying with the letter of these regulations. I think we're now clearly at this cusp where most companies, particularly companies of, of any reasonable scale who have websites, for example, or experiences that reach thousands or millions of consumers, they realize that that prior approach, that programs-oriented approach is just not scalable, right? Industry estimates are that it costs a company on, on the order of $1,600 for every single deletion request that a customer or a consumer might bring to their brand. Well, multiply 1,600 by thousands, millions of, of, of consumers who are invoking their rights and who care about privacy, and it's plain that a company can't, you know, that's just not scalable. So the essence of what Catch does is to make, is to move privacy from programs to programmatic, to make it a truly machine-based, software-enabled process, right, that captures, respects, consent and privacy at every touch point facing every consumer, and then really enacts all of those privacy instructions and preferences at the most granular level across every internal system, every partner system, right? All of this again, through machine-based connections. No, it's a, it's a hands-free, you know, humans oversee it. And, and all of the privacy program managers and the, and the people who care about privacy, the chief data officers, CMOs, and others beyond just the legal teams in these companies operate in catch inside a policy center that helps them establish the rules of the road, right? But without all of the hands-on point-to-point paper-based programs-oriented things they had to do in the first gen. That's what we do. To me, Tom, that's, I really think, the future of privacy compliance. We've seen a number of companies approach it both ways. And the ones that are still following a paper-based approach, as soon as the exercise is done, it's out of date, particularly in you know, using data discovery or doing a manual data discovery approach and building out a data inventory in Europa. It just doesn't work. Data is like yeah. water, it gets everywhere and it's constantly in flux. So to switch gears a little bit, I mean, you've had a number of successes in other industries, right? The companies that I outlined earlier, why did you pick privacy for your next venture? Why this space and why now? Yeah, so two, two bits to that, Fahad. The first is actually, and it's a little funny to say it now because the second company you mentioned, Crux, um, became known as a data management platform for marketing. And when we started that company, Vivek and I, uh, we actually had such passion for these issues in whatever that was, twenty. 10, 2011, that our very first product was something called Crux Consumer. And what we wanted to do was to give every, every person the ability to control their data signature and to specify, not, not this is before GDPR, before privacy regulations happened. So there was this control premise that a consumer could come and say, hey, I want this company to know my age and my location, but not my um, household income for purposes of recommendations to give me more of what I want, but not for targeting, right? That level of precision was, was the dream in 2010. So we built this thing called Crutch Consumer. I thought we had fire in a bottle, right? And so we put it on the website and 
we thought billions of, of consumers across the planet will understand and, and flock to this like moths to a flame. And about 1,400 people showed up. I think my mom logged in three or four times just to show, show support. The point is, it was 2010. Nobody cared, right? It was crickets. And so we we always, you know, we had that that consumer facing idea, and then we tilted the company into more of a, a business to business kind of software offering, and and we worked it out. I mentioned this because the idea has always glistened for for me and Vivek and and others. Like we just feel, but you know, at a basic sort of level of principle, this kind of control needs needs to be in the world. Okay, fast forward now to the exit of Crux. Salesforce had acquired us in 2016. Some a few short months after that transaction closed, GDPR happened. Suddenly, uh, we are now on hook to respect deletion. Well, you listen to that and and a neophyte might listen to it and say, hey, what's the big deal? You know, Fahad shows up, wants to be deleted, just go into the database, delete him. I've likened that to, but, but what we have to remember is that Fahad is a row of data that sits in potentially hundreds or thousands of tables, each of which has millions and millions of rows and columns. So I've likened it to you know, deleting Fahad is like, going into an ocean and pipetting out a single little droplet of water with this much nitrogen, that much oxygen, this much carbon and so on, right? It's not easy. It sounds trivial, but in practice, it's really, really hard. So what we had to do at in that moment at Salesforce was dispatch a team of basically nine of our best engineers for the better part of six months full on to rewrite a good amount of our data infrastructure to comply with GDPR. By the way, Salesforce, to its great credit, didn't want to just have the Hollywood facade of pretending to comply. And that's the problem with a lot of the first-gen solutions is they, they create the patina of capturing a consent or a, or a, or a rights request, right? They're putting it in a, in a precious little place somewhere, but they're not actually enacting it across their data infrastructure. So we're a bunch of data management geeks. We've got to do this the right way. So we build all of it. and in some sense, really, we built Catch as the system we wish our former selves had during that time. Because instead of dispatching a team of nine great engineers for six months to do this bespoke single thing just to comply with deletion, of course, things have gotten a lot more complex today since then, man, it would have been great to just go into our policy center today and toggle radio buttons, right? Where we've abstracted away, Catch, all the gore that our former selves had to deal with in that context. So, and we like puzzles. You asked about the earlier, why did we do this? Well, we like puzzles where we have up close and personal context for the problem, right? And we and we feel like we know, we have a secret. We, ha we know something unique and proprietary about how to solve it. And then importantly, again, back to thing one, we just have to care deeply about it. So that's how Catch came into existence. Thank you, Tom. And and, and just, I, I think you have already started sharing that. The question I have now is, what do you think makes Sketch unique, different from other companies in the market? Yeah, so I think it's, uh, it's first, importantly, um, as I mentioned before, to our knowledge, it's the only solution that's fully programmatic, right? And we, we mean software-enabled, API-driven, 
uh, automation of privacy. And let's, let's conceive of privacy broadly now. Consent, rights, preferences, communication. There may or may be a, a privacy regulation at work, but what we're talking about broadly is control in the hands of consumers, right? So, so enacting a software-enabled approach to, to that kind of level of privacy and control for the consumer um, is, is the first place where we distinguish ourselves. The second is that it's end to end. I think that you know, we see a lot of uh, companies out there picking up individual pieces of the puzzle. When we work with customers, we see a lot of vendor fatigue, a lot of exhaustion over the complexity of systems that handle, for example, just consent or systems that are really good at particular rights implications or systems that are good for data discovery, but they don't actually, so they discover, hey, here's Carlos, he wants to be deleted. They can discover where you sit inside uh, the dataverse of a company, but those that's the beginning of the puzzle. It's not the end. Now we have to do the thing, right? We need to honor Carlos's request. So Ketch is coming to the table and say, look, it's an end-to-end, tent over the circus, let us conquer and, and handle all of that complexity for you all in one. That's the second. And the third, uh, particularly now with matters of data discovery is, is to unleash the power of AI to automate and make much more intelligent the process of discovering what data assets a company has. The first gen solutions, you can think of them as sort of like scribing systems, they're bookkeeping systems that have a lot of manual work for IT people now to go in and take inventory of all of their data and sort of manually scribe and create the catalogs that enable uh, these, these privacy components. We come to this problem and we say, what a beautiful opportunity to unleash the machines. Let's, let's put the machines to work and apply AI to discover risk in certain types of data. By the way, not all data is created equal. When it comes to privacy in particular, it's it's you know two percent of the data is carrying or potentially creating ninety eight percent of the risk that companies want to mitigate, right? So for us, we look at that and say, this is a place to deploy intelligent you know intelligent algorithms and other kinds of methods for AI enabled classification to go into that broad, broad sprawl of data, quickly discern. Um, which data matters, and then in a with a kind of a progressive approach to surface that data, bring it to the top, and then you know tamp down and and understand programmatically how that data unfolds. The other piece of it there with AI for 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 discovery is a lot of existing approaches are very static. We all know an organization's data is in flux. Fahad, I heard you say that at the beginning. It's a game of flux. It's like water flowing all the time. So a static approach is not going to get you where you need to go, particularly in a context where, okay, it's not just GDPR, it's California. Oh, there's Virginia. What are the Brazilians doing? It's this game of whack-a-mole where these, these regulations are constantly um, taking root. They're all different. There's all of this data that needs to kind of comply with different pieces of the, that regulatory puzzle, right? So, so an AI-enabled approach gives you a much more responsive and intelligent and durable way to, uh, to meet the market and, and re respond to all of these privacy imperatives as they, as they unfold. Thanks, Tom. So it's clear that Catch is addressing the current problems that companies have and in a 
in a very unique way. Um, I mean, I, I think of you as a guy who clearly can see around corners. Um, so what do you think are going to be some of the big problems that companies will have to solve in five, 10 years down the line? And how do you think technology, catch or otherwise, can help solve those problems? Yeah, I touched on it before. And we think a lot about this, Bahad, in our shop is, look, right today, it's mostly a game of defense. Right? Privacy is about compliance and responding to this havoc of regulatory uh, stuff that's unfolding. And that's as it should be. But if you're if we're going out five to 10 years, and let's not even go, forget 10 years, let's go to five years. What we're seeing is a number of companies now who are sort of reading the zeitgeist and, and realizing, hey, I, I don't want to just comply with the letter of these regulations. I had a customer tell me um, this last year, I want to be the anti-Facebook. I don't want to be just complying defensively. I want to seize advantage. There's, you know, trust is an opportunity um, that I need to, to conquer on my own. So that's why in our in our shop, we think a lot about, yes, privacy is, is a stage one existential imperative for just about every company, as I mentioned, you might not think you have a privacy problem, but if you've got a website, you do, right? The regulators and others might not be coming for you right away. Another customer told us two years ago, we're hiding in the herd. Their exact words, we're hiding in the herd. I noticed actually they've just come back in, in this last uh, three months they've signed on as a customer catches. So that's, you know, that's the way the winds blow. Right, so companies saying I can't hide in the herd, I need to respond to this to this problem, but don't just um, defend, right? Seize the advantage, proceed offensively now to matters of trust. And so for us, uh, it's beyond it's beyond consent, it's beyond rights, it's beyond disclosure, it's about preferences, it's about communication, it's about finding every customer where they are, and at that particular moment in truth, not don't. Don't bludgeon me with 14 screens to make me say, to get to the thing that I want. In the moment of truth, when, I, when, when you're giving me more of what I want, come to me respectfully and say, hey, Tom, if you give me this, this additional data, I can dazzle you in this whole new way, right? So in some sense, we're bringing all of the habits we acquired in our prior build out around marketing, you know, personalization and, and data management for marketing, right? Take that same approach and apply it to privacy. Privacy doesn't have to be a plate of, of broccoli and carrots. Let's put some mac and cheese on it, right? Let's make it delicious and awesome for the companies and the customers they're dealing with to, to proceed with trust. And because, by the way, we conducted with one of our partners a study recently, who our knowledge is the first known result that, that establishes how customers will respond to brands who treat them respectfully right, and respect their data dignity, with trust, those customers exhibit a 28% higher propensity to purchase, right? If I like this brand and I think that they're doing the right thing with me and they're, they're a responsible steward of my data, I'm going to buy more, right? So, so what we think of today is privacy, but let's expand it now into questions of trust. Trust drives top-line revenue, right? And so I think if five years from now, Fahad, certainly will have come out of which we'll look back then and look at today as, as sort of the doldrums and the dreary compliance oriented defense 
defensive moves in privacy, we're going to proceed now to offensive opportunities that feed the top line. Um, I love the mac and cheese reference, and it 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 made me hungry. Um, I I I I, I <laughs> we all love mac and cheese. I know, I know that was a great analogy, uh, and and that's why I think um, thinking of moving privacy operations to something that is mac and cheese instead of broccoli and carrots, it's it's perfect. Uh, I have to be careful here because I really think that if I crush on you any harder, I might get in trouble with my wife who does listen to this podcast, but you have a uh, you know very inspiring upbringing from what I know from, I think there was an article written about it and what you shared on LinkedIn. Um, you've, you've had an incredible mother who had this dream to send all of her children to Harvard and she, she accomplished that dream. And I gather that she, you know, was pivotal, uh, a pivotal figure in your, in your upbringing and in your success today. Can you just please share with our listeners uh, what, it was, what, your, what it was like growing up and some information about your background? Sure. So I am, uh, Carlos and I were, were vibing a little bit at the beginning here. I'm, I'm a Mexican-American kid from Albuquerque, New Mexico. I was born in New Mexico. Um, but uh, my family is, is Mexican-American, Indian from Mexico. My grandmother uh, was, was an orphan who immigrated from Spain. So, so that's sort of the, the family background. I have 70 first cousins, uh, all of them in and around Albuquerque and other places. So big family, big Mexican Catholic family. Um, I'm one of five kids. I'm the middle kid in my family. And my mom, as you said, just... Uh, you know, the family lore has it that she got into an argument with her older brother when she was very, very little. They're living in, in the barrio, which is the broke part of, of Albuquerque. No running water in the houses, no, no, no paved roads. And she gets into a, a big argument with her brother. And she, she says, well, screw you. Someday I'm going to have 10 kids and I'm going to send them all to Harvard. So we all try to figure out, like, how did this, you know, this girl in the barrio even understand doesn't even speak English and there's no books or magazines in the house. How did she even hear of this thing called Harvard? Right. It kind of makes, makes us wonder still how that happened, but she just had this dream, this idea that she was going to transcend all of those circumstances. And, and, you know, sure enough, she moved, you know, she got a job as a secretary at Sandia national labs. She met my dad who was a draftsman. They didn't go to college, but they kind of leveled up a little bit and got into a, a house in the slightly nicer part of Albuquerque, close to the mall, out of the barrio, and and we all just got to work. You know, the good Lord didn't bless her with ten kids, but but just five. But but she uh, she did send all of them to Harvard. I was lucky that you know I had these two older brothers who had kind of paved the path, and and so you know I had the framework for what success looked like, and in, in our family. It was just very clear, you know, you didn't have time. There was going to be no time for TV, dates, frolicking on weekends. It was work, right? We, it, it was, and, and excellence in academics was, was above, came first. I remember being a little bit terrified uh, if, if to bring home a B plus on, in any class, because my mom would make it very clear, like a B plus is just not good enough go back and, and bring, bring home A's. So, you know, a good amount of pressure, I suppose. But, but uh, the truth is, you know, we all kind of took to it. My mom, if she were here with us, would say that 
she doesn't know how it happened. My mom is funny this way because she'll, oh, I, I have no idea. You guys all just work so hard and we're smart or whatever. No. <laughs> this was, you have very good ideas about how this actually unfolded. It wasn't an accident. But yeah, I mean, the other piece of it that she likes to call attention to is that we kept our side of the deal, right? If they were going to work their, their tushies off to pay for private schools and music lessons and all of that, that we would have to deliver the goods and get the grades. And, and so me just, you know, following my brothers with the framework that they kind of established, my little sister's doing the same. It all kind of worked out. That is it such is. a beautiful story. It is, it is an amazing story. And, and just to, to continue on, on a similar line, Tom, I, I was sharing with you that I was born and raised in Mexico and, and in Canada. Hel helping people within the Latin community is very close to my heart. I already shared with you that I am a member with Alpha Canada, this organization that is empowering Latin American people to become leaders. I, I understand and I know that you do something similar. Could you just share with us a little bit about that? Yeah, well, you know, and by the way, we talked a lot about my mom in our family. My mom was the CEO and my dad was the COO. So my mom and dad had a plan for all of us. And one of the things they would together talk a lot about at the dinner table was, listen, when you guys uh, achieve what we know you're going to achieve, don't forget where you come, came from. Don't get fancy. Uh, don't get brand new. <laughs> pay it back, pay it forward. So that was always in the air. And so for my sister, brothers and sisters and me, as we've grown older, you know, it, it, it's important for us to carry mom and dad's principles forward. And, and so it's, it's very nourishing for me to be able to stay involved with, with various groups that, uh, you know, promote and advance uh, Latinos who also come from humble circumstances, who also need to have opportunities to, uh, to achieve and and become and actualize their full potential. So, you know, I'm I'm lucky to be able to support some various groups locally where I live, but then um, on a national level who who are concerned with matters of immigration, matters of education. That's our family story. Education was was the great equalizer. It was the mechanism by which we were able to kind of um, achieve the American dream. So in those places and ways, you know, I, I work with, with groups, many of them focus, for example, there's a group called um, LBAN, the Latino Business Action Network, uh, based out of Stanford, where, you know, you have Latino entrepreneurs coming in, get tooling up, getting the training that they need to build their businesses. I, I you know, I'm close to various people there, and I, I work with some of the entrepreneurs who come out of there. We have other groups who are working with kids much earlier, you know, at Superset and, and Catch and other companies that we work with in our shop, you know, we're very, we're, we're just thrilled to have some top tier engineers who are coming from backgrounds where they don't have all of the computer science training and all the frameworking in, in the house that other privileged kids have when it comes to these kinds of questions. So they're tooling up, getting trained as engineers. We're, we're lucky to have them coming in and, and kicking butt and doing great things in our in our shop. So there's this kind of, as I talk about here with you, Carlos, there are these great ways in which the, the some of the service-oriented things I'm lucky to do kind of intertwine with my professional life, right? And I like that. I don't want, I want everything to kind of, I want to put it in the shaker, shake it all up and, and enjoy the cocktail that comes out of it. So, so yeah, it's, uh, 
but it all kind of goes back to mom and dad and, and making sure that, you know, whatever success my brothers and sisters and I are able to, to enjoy that, um, you know, you don't forget where you come from. Thanks, John. Lots of uh, golden nuggets of wisdom in there. And I couldn't agree with you more, and not to get too political, but if people who are in positions now where their life is good and they have uh, influence or power, to me, life only makes sense if those people uh, go out of their way to help people in disadvantaged backgrounds, because we can't choose where we're born uh, or what circumstances we start off with. But for those who are able to get out of those circumstances or those who are born in better circumstances, if they can go out and help people in less fortunate situations, I think to me that makes life make a bit more sense. And so I think our listeners are gonna get a lot of wisdom from our interview with you today, I think, especially your, your journey and the principles and values that your parents taught you and your approach to company building and attacking these problems in the privacy space. Do you have any parting words of wisdom for our audience? Well, for the privacy practitioners, uh, first, thank you. You're doing God's work. <laughs> and and it's the early innings for sure, but we're seeing the change in not in, in the mindset and the way companies and citizens look at these matters. So there's plenty of work still to be done. So don't be disheartened. Don't give up lean in because you know these opportunities still glisten for a lot of us and look I, I'm a biased source but I think if you have a good idea and you'd like to see it take root and and exist in the world software is a really good way to do it right and and so for privacy practitioners how do you how do you take all of the acumen and expertise that you've developed and how do you supercharge it how do you propagate it and send it everywhere using software right? So, so moving out of that first gen kind of paper-based approach to something that's much more scalable through software, that's an opportunity still to be seized, I think. Um, for the other listeners, you know, if you're if you're interested in company building and entrepreneurship, uh, look, it's it's forty times right now, and I I think I see a lot of people seizing up a little bit. Um, so yes, there is economic tumult, and we're reading headlines about all the layoffs that are ha happening, and so on. I know it sounds a little odd for me to say it, but I can't help but reflect back to when we started my last company, which we started in 2009, that was after what was well, a terrible economic meltdown in 2008. This, what we're dealing with today is not of that scale. And so it turns out that building in 2009, even though it seemed a little grim at the time, the economic cycle, you know, the wave starts to accumulate and you start to build and, and then that rising tide lifts all boats. So if it feels a little grim right now, as Winston Churchill said, when you're going through hell, keep going. And and in this context, remember, it's a beautiful time to be building, right? It's, it, you gotta, and this is also the time that separates the tourists from the winners, right? You gotta, you gotta prove your metal, throw your hat in the ring, keep building, uh, it, it's not just about not despairing, but also understanding like, again, it's a beautiful time because this wave will rise again and you want to be riding it if, if, you're, if you're interested in, in entrepreneurship. Um, thank you so much. I think that more than one of our listeners will be interested in uh, 
contacting you? If that's the case, how can they find you? Yeah, I'm I'm on LinkedIn, and that's that's my. I'm not really uh, an Insta guy or a Facebook guy. Speaking of privacy, I won't I won't be on any of those platforms for reasons of first principles. But LinkedIn seems to do a pretty good job of, of respecting our privacy and and doing the right thing with our data. And I like that channel. So LinkedIn is is the ideal place to to reach me. Tom, again, thank you so much for being here with us today. It's been a great, great conversation. And if you want to be in touch with me, you know you can find me as Carlos Chalico on LinkedIn. And yes, as Carlos Chalico on Twitter. What about you, Fahad? As Fahad Duan on LinkedIn. Thank you, Tom, so much for being here with us today. This was a lot of fun. I really appreciate the invite. Thank you for the time together.